Father, how sweet indeed the sound of saving grace. And so we ask you to come by the... I invite you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start reading in verse 27 and I read through to the end of the chapter. You've joined us in the second week of our series, Grasping for Grace. We're taking five or six weeks to look at at lessons from the life of, of Jacob. And this week we pick up here in verse 27, reflecting upon sibling rivalry. That's our, our title for the morning. So first, let's, let's read this text together. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac, that's the father, loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Do you have siblings? If you do have siblings, I wonder how you get along with those siblings. Or perhaps maybe when you were kids, how did you get along with your siblings then? Are there any memories or or stories that, that quickly come to mind when you hear the phrase sibling rivalry? Now, I am the middle child, which probably explains some of my issues. I have uh, an older sister, she's two years older than me, uh, called Sarah. And then I have a younger brother who's nine years younger than me, and he's called Surprise. Um, (laughs) Now, my sister is the stereotypical first child, okay? She's conscientious, and she's diligent, and she's studious, and I remember that she was just kind of a, a tough act to follow in high school, you know? First day of class, teachers would say to me, oh, you're Sarah's brother. And then on the last day of class, they'd say to each other, can you believe he's Sarah's brother? You know, just that kind of a tough act to follow. But I always got along pretty well with my siblings and, and certainly do, certainly do today. Last week we were introduced to yet another of the Bible's dysfunctional families. And more specifically, to one of the greatest sibling rivalries in all of human history. Now if you missed last week, don't worry, because verse 27 reintroduces us to the twin brothers we met last week. In the red corner, we have Esau. You remember him? He was the rugged redhead who came out looking a bit like Chewbacca. Uh, But we read that he has grown. And how has he grown? See there? Into a skillful hunter, a man of the field. So Esau is big. Esau pumps iron. He is swole. He has a bow. He has an arrow. He knows how to use them. Esau spends most of his time outside killing things. He's like the ultimate man's man. Then in the blue corner, we have his twin brother, Jacob. Remember him? 
He's the younger of the two. He came out second, grasping for his brother's heel and was given a name that means deceiver or cheat. And it turns out that he is nothing like his brother. A quiet man, we read, dwelling in tents. So he doesn't fill the room with his stature. He doesn't fill the room with his personality. He's a homebody. He's the, you know, the trash goes out more than Jacob does. A quiet guy who prefers to stay at home. He's happy that way. And I think it's important to note as we just take this initial glance into this text that there's nothing wrong with that. In other words, the Bible describes the differences between these two brothers, but doesn't imply at this stage that one is better than the other. In other words, don't read this verse with Hollywood's definitions of masculinity in mind. There's nothing wrong with being like Esau, rough, ready, into sports, fixing cars. But there's also nothing wrong with being like Jacob, a little more quiet, a little more reflective, into conversation in the arts, perhaps, nor... Is there anything wrong with being a combination of the two? The point is that this verse is completely irrelevant to our understanding of masculinity. So men, yes, we want to be men, but we want to be careful what we're aiming for when we say that and not think that we're being encouraged to be kind of a man's man like Esau or that the measure of our masculinity will be made by our our biceps, our achievements, our successes. No, there's much more to being a man than that has to do with tender strength and sacrifice and Christ-likeness and another sermon perhaps. But for today, the point is, the problem isn't with the brothers themselves at this point. The first problem we hit upon in our passage isn't with the brothers in verse 27, but it's with the parents in verse 28. Have a look at it with me. Here we read that Isaac, this is the father of the boys, loves Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. But Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob. The text begins and we see the poisonous presence of preference. Mum and dad have begun to play favorites. They are kindling and stoking the fires of competition and rivalry that will lay the foundation for a lifetime of strife between these two boys. And this is convicting stuff, I think, for any parent. In two ways, at least. First of all, when it comes to Isaac, the dad, who prefers Esau. Why? Because he enjoys the game he catches. Uh, Isaac is a man who likes to grill. He's a man who likes steak, and his son is a man who's good at going and getting steak. So uh, Isaac favors him. In other words, he prefers the child who gives him something. Prefers the child who gives him what he wants. Now, of course, in in our day, in our time, we tend not to celebrate the child who brings us red meat, but kids, never a bad idea, okay? (laughs) Fan of it. Um, In our day, we're more tempted to celebrate the child uh, who makes us look good. We're more likely to celebrate the child who, who gives us what we want by making us look good. That's often what parents in our area struggle with. And so from birth, we put these arbitrary statements out there to kind of celebrate their exceptionality. Oh, born on the 90th percentile. She has so many words. He made all stars. She's got great grades. He made it into this college or that college. Now, don't get me wrong. All those things, all those things are good. Okay? All those things are good. Uh, 90th percentile, many words. Hey, Who doesn't love a fat baby that can say goldfish, okay? (laughs) 
that will make anyone's day happier, right? The, the, the challenging thing to consider is, what are you enjoying? Are you enjoying them or what you get to tell other people about them? When it comes to your kids, are you enjoying them or are you enjoying how they make you look? The wear, the sin of Isaac. Secondly, though, I think we also as parents need to beware the sin of Rebecca. Now, the text isn't quite as explicit as to why this mother favored her young homebody, but the impression we get from this text and, and also from how the larger passage unfolds is that she has a soft spot for him because he has this tendency to dwell amongst the tents where she is. In other words, she prefers the child who's more like she is. She prefers the child who is most like her. Now, we know, of course, that kids come in all different shapes and sizes, temperaments and personalities. Some kids are outgoing, loud, happy, obnoxious. Some kids are are quieter, more timid, more shy. Some are into sports, some are into books, some are into music, some are into Legos, some are into all of the above, and there's nothing wrong again with any of that. However, as parents, we also know that it can be easier to give our time and attention to the children whose personality and passions align more easily with our own. It can be easy to connect and bond when our children are like us and harder to do when we're not quite sure what to make of them. And so the best advice I was ever given on this idea was from one of our elders who said, make sure, yes, to to introduce your kids to the things you're passionate about. So that's part of the fun of parenting. Have them root for your team, play them the music you love, show them your favorite movies, do all those things, build memories, good stuff. But also, make sure, not only to introduce them to the things you're passionate about, but make sure to introduce yourself to the things they're passionate about. So, their music might make no sense to you. Listen to it. You might think the movies are dumb. Watch them. The games they play, again, might not connect. Play them. Engage with your kids, not just about on the things you're passionate about, but on the things that they're passionate about as well. I had a, a fun reminder of this, this, this not just this week, this, this weekend. Um, several years ago, Rosie, my wife, told me, you need to learn how to braid a girl's hair, because you're the dad of two daughters. Okay? So I sat there like, this is literally the most ridiculous thing I've ever done in my life, okay? Um, and uh, then this weekend uh, came along, and it was the, the daddy-daughter dance, okay? Now, daddy-daughter dances are, are amusing to me on a couple of levels. First of all, because just as, as a concept, as a thing, it, first of all, it, it's really hard to get the words around the feeling in your soul when your wee girl gets a pretty dress and is delighted that you're taking her out. You know, that's just it's a beautiful thing. It's also hard to get words around the awkwardness of a group of dads being told, you must dance and you may not drink beer, right? (laughs) And I'm like, I can do both or neither, right? (laughs) So here we all are with our girls and kind of awkwardness, right? Um, But it it turned out yesterday that uh, Rosie was out for the afternoon and the evening at an event here at the church. And so... Guess who dressed the seven-year-old for the party? Right? I guess who blow-dried the hair? Right? I guess who hit the clip? Guess who did all of this stuff? This guy. Right? 
Now, I don't want to overplay the quality of my work, okay? Uh, the point being, once, yet again, my wife was right, okay? Yet again, she was right. How, how interested was I in, in learning those skills? Not at all. What's my natural ability for them? Very low. And yet, by engaging in the things she's passionate about, she and I were able to have a special moment yesterday. Learn to connect with your kids and the things that they're passionate about as well. This passage stands as a warning to us against parental favoritism. Favorite, you know, sort of having a preference for the child who makes you look good or for the child who's most like you. All our children need to feel the warm parental glow of our approval just because they're ours. They need to know that they are our beloved sons and daughters and that with them we are well pleased. We need to love them, in other words, like we ourselves have been loved. Moving into verse 29, we find the boys doing what these boys do best. So Jacob is at home, he's cooking up some stew, perhaps he's working on a new recipe, it's coming together nicely. Esau, on the other hand, is still out in the field, he's famished after a long day and he starts to drag his tired body home. Now, when he arrives from inside the tent, Jacob hears his brother coming and perhaps not looking up from his pot, he puts that final bit of seasoning in. But from outside the tent, hungry Esau smells his brother's cooking. And so he rips off his boots and he heads inside. And then in verse 30, he walks in and they exchange, don't they exchange nice brotherly pleasantries? Hey, how are you? How was the day? Did it go well? Did you catch it? None of that whatsoever. Here's how the conversation begins as, as Esau grunts in Jacob's direction, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. Let me eat some of that is true. I'm exhausted. Now, at this point, we get what seems to be a a strange parenthetical comment. Therefore, his name was Edom. You see it there? Therefore, his name was Edom. Remember, in verse 25, when Esau was born, he came out a kind of reddish color. And now, in verse 30, we learn that he likes to eat red stew. He's like a ginger eating carrots, okay? Okay. And so now here in in verse 30 again, he's given this nickname, Edom, which means what? It means red. Now why is this detail included here? It's included because it's going to be an important detail for us later on in this series. Back in verse 23, you'll remember that the Lord had told Rebekah that she had two nations within her womb. In other words, the boys that she was going to bear were each going to become the leaders of a separate nation. And that these nations would not be allies. These nations would be in conflict with one another. Well, the nation that would be descended from Esau was called Edom. Was called Edom. The Edomites are those people that are descended from Esau. And so the author inserts this detail here, this nickname here, so that when we read about the Edomites in a a couple chapters' time, they won't have just come kind of out of nowhere, out of the blue. We'll, We'll know who they are. We'll know that these Edomites are in fact the descendants of Esau. In verse 31, Jacob hears his brother's dinner request or or dinner order, perhaps, and without looking up from his pot still, he says, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. Now, 
we don't really have anything quite like a birthright today, but in, in, these, in these days, in these Bible days, a, a birthright was an incredibly significant and valuable commodity that brought with it both material and spiritual blessings. Material and spiritual blessings. So the birthright brought the firstborn son material blessings. He would inherit twice the amount all the other sons would. Secondly, the birthright brought great spiritual blessings. The firstborn son would become the head of the family, the spiritual leader, if you like, of the people. So a birthright could be bought and a birthright could be transferred from one brother to the next. But it was an incredibly valuable commodity. In other words, Jacob's response to Esau's request is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. A a, a bowl in exchange for your birthright. It's as if Esau says, hey, can I have a bowl of that stew? And Jacob says, yes, give me $15 million. It's a completely absurd request. Now what's going on here isn't just one brother being a jerk to his other brother. Something deeper is, is going on. If you look up to verse 23 again, the Lord had promised that not only would these sons form nations, and not only would these nations be in conflict with each other, but the older would serve the younger. In other words, it was the younger son, Jacob, who would come to have more prominence, more power, more prestige. And Jacob knows of this promise, but he's getting tired of having big, muscly, older brother lord over him. And so in this moment, what he's doing is he's he's trying to expedite God's promise. Sure, God knows what he's doing, but let's just help the timing along a little bit. He's taking matters into his own hands. He's trying to snatch this promise through his own cunning and his own manipulation. We reflected last week on some of the the practical implications that that flow from this and and the need that we have to be patient as we wait upon the Lord. encourage you to, to listen to that if you missed it. But carrying on, if, if Jacob's request is ridiculous, Esau's response is more preposterous still. More preposterous still. Now, before we pick up any stones, I have to tell you, as I studied it this week, in this preposterous man, I started to see myself. It's kind of one of those moments, you know when your laughter turns to dismay? You're kind of like, oh, no, right? That's what this passage was like to me. Because as the story unfolds in Esau, we see a study in how sin works. The anatomy of sin, you could say. Let's see if you, you recognize yourself as I did in the progression that unfolds. First of all, in verse 32, we get step one of how sin works, exaggerated emotions. Exaggerated emotions. You see it there? Esau says, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And we see that Esau has grown up, but he hasn't really grown up. About to die, hungry, sure. Starving to death, hardly. Tired, certainly. About to die? No. In his exhaustion, he's lost all perspective. His emotions are completely out of whack with the situation at hand. 
His emotional response is is disproportionate to the circumstances that he's in. And it's tremendously self-defeating. Remember who Esau is. He's he's the big guy. He could go over and be like, right, you wee mama's boy, give me some stew before I mash your face in. But instead he kind of whimpers in self-pity in the corner. And how often for us is it that we struggle, struggle with the same thing? Exaggerated emotions. A hard day, perhaps, stress in the office, unexpected bill, uh, drama with the kids, an argument with your spouse, and all of a sudden your emotions get heightened and exaggerated like Esau's. Do you have a sense of how you do this? We, we tend to have, have patterns of, of how we do this ourselves. For some people it is a kind of self-pity like, like Esau. For others it's just a kind of general negativity. No matter what happens, you have 17 reasons why it's, why it's about to go wrong. Uh, for other people, the emotional kind of exaggeration will come out in anger. I'm, I'm going to yell or I'm going to give you the silent treatment. Same thing, different manifestation. Uh, just because I, I don't really know what to do with how I feel. And so, the Bible calls us to self-control. And this great concept of, of temperance. A slow and steady disposition where you're not put too up nor too down by the events of the day. But so often we find that life happens and our emotions get exaggerated. We lose all perspective. We say things we didn't mean to say. We do things we didn't mean to do. And we start agreeing to sell our birthright. That's the first step in our study of how sin works. Exaggerated emotions. Second step comes in verse 33, where after exaggerated emotions, we see instant gratification. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, what we see here is that Jacob is a very, uh, he's a savvy negotiator. Okay? He, has, he has read the art of the deal. Right? Uh, he, he knows what he's doing, and he knows that while he has received kind of a general agreement, he needs to go ahead and make this thing legal. And he knows that this verbal oath will make their transaction legal. So it's as if at this point Jacob has slid the piece of paper across the desk and said, okay, sign on the bottom line, let's make this thing official. Now, at this point, Esau should have stopped and said, I thought you were kidding. You're serious? You, 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 actually, you actually really want to make... You really think I'm going to pay you $15 million for a bowl of stew? I, I, I thought you were joking. I, I can't believe that you're actually wanting to go through with this deal. Instead, what does he do? He signs on the dotted line. And he gives up what he wants most for what he wants now. Gives up what he wants most for what he wants now. And... Friends, again, isn't this often how we get ourselves in trouble? I think we all have like a, a vision or a, an aspiration or a dream of like the kind of people we want to be for the impact we'll have on those around us. Perhaps long-term priorities we feel deeply committed to. And then just day-to-day life happens. And in the humdrum and in the busyness of it all, we're quick to lose perspective. And so we end up settling for what feels good now. We don't adhere to our long-term values. We uh, instead value those things that are right in front of us. 
instant gratification. And again, it's worth considering in your life, how does this play out? What, what's the pattern in your life? Perhaps it's you know, a deep desire to be present for your kids, but the instant gratification of professional success keeps you at the office. Perhaps it's a deep desire for financial stability, but the instant gratification of the store lures you in. Perhaps it's that good, right desire for sexual purity, but the instant gratification of the internet drags you in. Perhaps it's just a a more general desire for, for integrity, but the instant gratification of gossip just feels feels so good. And so we find that our larger perspective is overwhelmed by the immediacy of what's in front of us and we give up what we want most for what we want now. We sign on the dotted line and sell our birthright. That's the second step we see in how sin works from this passage. First, exaggerated emotions. Second, instant gratification. Third step comes in verse 34 where we see that these things lead to very disappointing results. Exaggerated emotions, instant gratification leads to disappointing results. Verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil shoe, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Again, you see the the rapid succession of verbs, how the text suddenly flows out before us, that he ate, drank, rose, went. And it's quite a contrast, really, in terms of how this narrative has been put together. So far, the pace has been slow. We've had a slow motion, if you like, vision of him saying one thing, him saying another, him saying another thing. It's like a a slow motion text. And then suddenly we go into fast forward as we see the results of sin, where he eats, drinks, ups and leaves. He doesn't savor the culinary experience. He just inhales it and he's done. He inhales it and he's done. You exchanged your birthright for that? You exchanged your birthright for the pleasure you received from that brief moment and here's the point. This is how sin works. Sin promises so much And it delivers so little every single time. It promises so much. It looks so good. But it delivers so little. It always disappoints every single time. Of course there's a pleasure in it. We're not naive to try and, and deny that. Of course there's a pleasure. That's why you're drawn to it in the first place. But that pleasure is fleeting. It's like a vapor that's here and it's gone Sin is the shortcut that doesn't even take you where you want to go. It can't make good on what it offers. And how many of us, how many people have made shipwreck of the day, worse, their careers, their reputations, their marriages, even their very lives, in the pursuit of a moment's happiness, a fleeting Happiness, only to turn around and realize it was not worth it. Sin is never worth it. Trusting God can be hard in the moment, but it's worth it in the long run. 
And obeying God can be hard in the moment, but it's always worth it in the long run. And your struggle with persistent sin will be greatly aided when you begin to truly believe that the most selfish, hedonistic thing you can do is in fact trust and obey God. That you will be happier in the long run if you walk in the path that he has laid out before you. Exaggerated emotions, instant gratification lead to disappointing results. And as preposterous as he is, Esau is not the only guilty party. He's not the only one to ever sell his birthright. I do it, you do it, we all do it. So as we reach the end of this passage then, what are we left with? Um, Some solid, hopefully solid parenting advice and some steps to avoid sin. Mercy Tell me there's more than that. Is this, are we in some self-help class? What happened? What just happened? No, we're in the church of Jesus Christ. Of course, there's more than that. Because when God started this story, he had a better ending in mind. A better ending for those like Esau, those like me, those like you who have forfeited their birthright. And this new ending begins with another son who forfeited forfeited his birthright. Not in the sense that he disqualified himself from it, but in the sense that he gave it up. One who voluntarily left his inheritance behind. Why? That he might transfer it to us. We have this older brother who's not out to deceive, not out to get what's his. We have the older brother who is literally dying to share. Literally dying to share. To share. It's the gospel story that in our sin we have sold our birthright. We have lost our seat at the family table. We have squandered the inheritance that we have been given. And so Jesus, even Jesus, comes not to buy us back with a bowl of stew, but to buy us back with blood. To buy us back with blood. And having paid for our sins, he transfers his birthright to us. A legal act, a legal act by which we are now heirs with him. And so, I'm not the man I want to be. We're not the men and women we want to be. And we're not the parents we want to be. And we do exaggerate our emotions and we do seek instant gratification and we do taste the disappointing results. And so for people like us, there is Jesus. Jesus who came to forgive and to restore Forgiven and restore. Remember this text. To all who receive Jesus. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Who believe in his name. For all who recognize their sin, who all recognize their need of forgiveness, to all who who trust Jesus for it. He gives the right to become what? Children of God. And if children, you remember? If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Friends, it's really important that we learn the practical lessons that this text has for us. Really important for us to seek to walk in that path. But more important for us to remember that we will not walk in them if we are not first walking with Christ. That the grace we need to obey these teachings comes from the grace we receive in him. The grace he gives for eternity provides us with the grace that we need for today. And walking with him is the only thing that will make you the man or woman, the parent, even the sinner that you want to be now and in eternity. 
The gospel tells us Esau, me, you, lost our birthrights. So Jesus gave up his, that he might share his inheritance with us. And that makes me want to get the Gatorade. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is so full of wisdom, teaching, instruction, that is profoundly helpful for life. But Lord, we're grateful that it's full of more than that. It's not just full of good advice that we're unable to follow. It's full of grace. Grace in Jesus Christ. Forgives us full and free despite our unwillingness to obey. And who restores us, Lord. Enables us to begin walking in faithfulness because we're walking with him. So for this gospel we give you thanks and honor and glory. In his perfect and matchless name. Amen.